managers are too afraid to tell people what the real expectations are and what the culture is and how we operate. And so when people come in, they go, nobody told me it was going to be like this. And so their first thing they're doing is like, hey, help me find a job. I got to get the hell out of here. And so it doesn't work for anyone. And so managers need to say, here's the job, good, bad, and the ugly. And if you want it, we're hiring you because we think you have the talent, interest, and passion for it. But you have to tell us whether you think you have that. Welcome to the Rising Leader Podcast, where being a high achiever doesn't necessarily equate to being an effective leader. Let's check to see if you're in the right place. If you're rising through the ranks of your organization so fast that your leadership skills need to grow as fast as your responsibilities, you're in the right place. If it seems you need different skills to lead your team or lead from within a group of talented, competitive peers, you're in the right place. If you're looking to become a trusted advisor to the CEO, you are definitely in the right place. So now that we know that you're in the right place, enjoy today's conversation. Before we begin, I have something for you. Have you not read Only Tens 2.0 yet? If you've been listening to the show, my guess is you have read it. Would you like to give away a copy to someone you care about, someone who's struggling with time and energy management, someone who needs to focus on the important things? Well, if you go to markjsilverman.com, click on the red resource buttons, we have put a free copy of Only Tens 2.0 for you to download, and you can upload it onto your electronic device of choice. I hope you enjoy. The heart is seen as the seat of connection between the mind and the body, forming a bridge between the two. The mind or spirit is housed in the heart, and the blood vessels are the communication channels that carry the heart's vital rhythmic messages throughout the body. This is an ancient Chinese adage that starts the book, Lead from the Heart, Transformational Leadership for the 21st Century, written by Mark C. Crowley, who is my guest today. He first wrote the book in 2011, way ahead of the curve, way before we started talking about bringing heart into the uh, boardroom, and has since republished it because guess what? Things have changed. COVID happened. The workplace has changed. So he updated it with new science, new studies, and really, really great anecdotes he is uh, on a mission to change the way how people lead in the workplace around the globe. Before writing his book, he spent over 20 years in the financial services industry. Uh, he's held two top national level positions, one of America's largest financial institutions, where he was named leader of the year. So what he does actually works. His curriculum is taught in many new universities, and he is the host of the Lead from the Heart podcast. Mark, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Mark. I appreciate it. And I'm going to just tell the listeners ahead of time, we're having a little bit of trouble with our connection. It's not so bad that we can't do the interview, but just in case you hear a little crackling, that's just happening between uh, Mark and I. So I love what you, you know, what you do. I've, I've, I've been bringing this into the workplace for the past decades, you know, as an, as an executive coach, but I do it stealthily. I do it sneakily. I'm not going to put on my website that I want you to bring your heart. I want you to bring love and compassion into your job. I sell leadership skills. I sell promotions. I sell more money. I sell all those things. And then I sneak it in and try and up level. Uh, you go full frontal. So I'm curious, why is it important for leaders to bring heart into the workplace? Well, you know, first of all, it's interesting because I was advised to do your strategy. I, you know, I wrote about this in the book, but I when the book was coming out, so let me back up and just say there's science that proves that the heart has huge influence over our behavior. So that's why heart is in 
the front of my message, right? So I, I'm saying this is real. It's not a metaphor. But even then, particularly 11, 12 years ago, the world wasn't ready for it. The world wasn't ready to be told that we need to lead from the heart because it's so antithetical to everything we've always believed in business, right? So I paid $10,000 to a marketing consultant to help me build a brand. I'm coming out of my career. Nobody knows me. I have this book. And she said, never, basically, I'll just use her language, but she said this legitimately. She goes, I don't ever want you effing using that expression again. And stop <laughs> saying leave from heart and sneak it in. Sneak it in. Like, that's what she exactly. said. You can, when you get on stage, you're getting work. She goes, because if you keep going where you're going, you're never going to get on stage. And the truth is, while that wasn't entirely true, it was more true than I hoped it would be. In other words, people heard it and they thought, oh, you know, that's fascinating what he's talking about. And, you know, nothing's working the way we're doing it. So maybe we should bring him in. And then at the last minute, it's like, that guy's going to come and sing Kumbaya on stage. I just know it. And so they don't hire me They hire the safe speaker and, you know, consultant or whatever. And so I have paid a huge price for this. There's simply no, no question. I paid a huge price for this for 12 years to just build this message. But the reason that I did it is because like, this is who I am. I've managed this way my entire life. And so for me to just slip it in wouldn't be authentic for me. I, I think you made the right choice. And I think, you, oh, by the way, let me tell you a little bit of interesting stuff about science and what we're learning about the heart. That's a clever way of, you know, getting people to get on board with you, right? But what I'm, you know, I finally had to decide because in that conversation, Mark, when, you know, I'm realizing I've just wasted $10,000, this woman isn't going to help me at all. She's basically telling me you're screwed if you keep doing this. So I was at this fork in a road and I had to make the decision and I made it consciously. She was saying, you should be some say something like killer engagement. That's where the world is. People <laughs> want killer, you know, and I just had to make a decision. Am I going to be willing to pay the price and continue to own a message that I know is truth and I believe inevitably is going to be adopted? Or do I take this sort of, alternative approach to it. And so you know which decision I made, obviously. And even now to this day, when people are talking about heart-led leadership, you know, we're hearing a lot more about that. The two things that I think distinguish me, one is I've done it my whole life. Like I, this is who I am, this is how I've led, very led successfully in a dog-eat-dog kind of the financial services world. So I know it works. Nobody could ever tell me, well, that'll never work in our industry. In your biography, basically, you talk about how you got promoted over and over and over again by leading this way. You were effective. Yeah, which I wasn't even aware of why they were validating or what they were validating, but ultimately they did. But the other, the other thing that I think is, Mark, that I'm talking about science. I'm talking about emerging science that says that our hearts are not just a pump. And that there is a connection between the heart and the mind and the heart sends more communication to the mind than the other way around. And that what we feel and experience is experienced through our bodies and our hearts especially are informing our minds on the choices we make. So if you want to be engaged, if you want people to be engaged at work, if you want people to be highly productive and loyal, you're going to have to do the things that affect the heart in a positive way that will influence them naturally. And so this is like, 
it's so compelling when you hear it that way. But when you go out there and go, we need to lead from the heart, people go, no, God, no. You know, we don't, you don't do that because that they'll take advantage of you and they won't do their work and you'll never meet their goals. And like, who told you that? You know, so all of that. Let's go right to the meat of that, because I really I am I am a hook, line and sinker aligned with everything that you just said, everything you wrote in the book. And I do coach in the fashion that you talk about. But you, again, were not, you know, you were effective. You were competitive. You were ambitious. Like you weren't soft just because you were heart led doesn't mean that you weren't you, you didn't need to do what you needed to do to lead a team to get to the results that you needed. Can you talk about the difference between being nice and actually leading from the heart and being effective? You know, first of all, let me compliment you because it's such a much more interesting conversation when I know that who I'm speaking to has an understanding of what I'm talking about, which you clearly do. And so you're asking a very precise question. And I think that's the assumption is that people think, oh, well, you know, you go around hugging people all the time or what, you know, like you're just a kind, nice person. And so they have this fantasy that that means that you're just a pushover and you're never going to get any results. So to frame this up, if you were to go and ask, let's say just you found 10 people that used to work for me. And you said, hey, I know all about Mark. I read his book and I, I you know, probably even heard about you in, in some of the stories he tells. Well, what's one word you would use to describe him as a leader? Well, I mean, you would think with the heart thing being front and center that they go, oh, well, he's a heart guy. You know, they would say they would never even mention the heart. Truly, it wouldn't dawn on them. They'd say he's the most demanding manager I ever worked for. So how does that square? Right. How can you be demanding and a heart led leader? Well, my belief is if I'm going to do the things that I did for people, if I'm going to make them feel really safe so they know exactly where they stand with me. And if there's any reason that I'm not happy with their performance, that I'm going to let them know so that they don't go home on a Friday night wondering where they stand. But more importantly, 99 percent of the time, people are doing what you made sure that they understood I love having you here. I made a great decision hiring you. You're doing fantastic work. Keep it up. So people don't have any ambiguity. That creates safety, which is foundational to our success. But meanwhile, it's getting to know them, know their stories, care about what's going on in their life, being able to make some accommodations if there's a challenging situation going on. But also, what do you want to do in your career? How can I help you? How can I coach you and teach you? And making sure that people feel appreciated, like routinely, like, I mean, and not only just instinctively, but regularly scheduled so that people know if they work hard, they're going to go into a meeting and they're going to get recognized and appreciated. All of these kinds of things create an abundance of positive emotions, which we know people thrive on, human beings thrive on. So if I'm doing all these things, and this is how I pitched it to my, to my employees pre-book, in other words, I used to say to them, like, I had no science behind me. And I just said, look, you guys are, you have so much more support than anybody else is getting. We shouldn't be setting our targets low. We shouldn't be like setting out to be average. Let's, let's set out to do something exceptional. And because, and one of the things that helped was we create you know, incentive plans that, you know, the bonuses and so forth that were aligned to their performance. So if they did, 
more, they would get more. So I wasn't asking people to stretch just so that it would serve me. Basically, you're not advocating for socialism and everybody, you know, every everybody, you know, is just fine. And, you know, everybody gets an A on their report card. You incentivized people to actually work, you know, and 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 rewarded them for for effort and results. Yes. And and not only that, but, you know, where where I really pioneered this in my own experience, again, not knowing I was going to go off and do this work or write this book, I just wanted to be a better manager and, and be more successful. There were, I was running a region of bank branches, 30 bank branches, you know, the ones where you go get a mortgage or a checking account, those you see them wherever you live. So I had 30 of them in my market and there were 85 people like me with 30 managers reporting to them and their whole staffs and whole support group. And we were not just number one in the bank for three years. We were number one in the bank for 36 consecutive months. And you know that in any sales environment, the minute somebody gets to be number one, everyone's gunning for you. So my peers were doing everything they could possibly do. Well, one of the things that they started to do was to recruit my people. So they were recruit, recruiting people who were ready to be a manager and I didn't have a slot for them. So now I'm losing my bench, if you will. But because I was always developing and, and helping people grow, I always had somebody to step into that. So if I had a manager get promoted, become a regional manager or something like that, I always had somebody else to go in there. So even with losing people and having people plucked off, we were always the best. And it was was because people thrived on just being great and they were rewarded for it, but it was also because it just felt so good to perform that well. How did you deal, how did you deal with being targeted? Like, you know, the, in that cutthroat way, your peers being cutthroat uh, when you are sitting there being open-hearted and wanting to lead in a different way. How do you reconcile that in your own psyche? Another wonderful question. The answer is, is that somewhere along the line, Mark, I had to make the decision, I'm going to be me, and that's who they're trying to sabotage us. We had, there was one regional manager that literally told his team, the only thing we get up in the morning to do is to beat Mark Crowley. <laughs> and I'm like, that's really not a very healthy motivation, but, but that's what he was trying to, you know, because it was so frustrating to him personally that he wasn't succeeding the way we were. But he was also a micromanager, managed with fear. He's the very same person that I described at the end of the book that that manager was terrified of working for. He, this is somebody who just created a toxic culture and he got numbers because people were afraid not to perform, but they were miserable. And if they could find a way out, off of his team, they did. So uh, there was a certain satisfaction in knowing that I could care about my people and make them feel really great about working for me and still driving performance. So it's interesting because I never anticipated that I was going to do this work and write a book, but there was something already deeply satisfying about knowing I'm kind of doing this the right way and look how well this is working. That self-satisfaction and, and knowing who you are is so essential you know, especially, you know, you, you grew up with uh, a lot of criticism and, you know, kind of, kind of being beaten into the ground and you got your, I guess, your self-esteem late in life, would you say? You're amazing, Mark. Um, by caring about my people and seeing them thrive and seeing the results that we got, it healed me because 
I didn't get a lot of those things growing up. And now I'm seeing other people that I'm giving them to thrive. And I can't explain the, you know, the calculus or the chemistry of it. All I can say is, is that it healed me seeing other people thrive based on what I was doing for them. So it was hugely satisfying. And I think that, by the way, you don't need a shitty childhood like I had in order to manage that way. You just have to be someone who thrives in the success of other people. So I wasn't threatened because I didn't get that. You know, I didn't have a mentor. I didn't have a coach. I didn't have somebody teaching me everything or making me feel safe or any of the things that I was doing for people. Just basic appreciation, thoughtful direction, all the things that I was giving people. I never got it. What you're teaching is not rocket science. It's, you know, what we would want from people, you know, from the people who we work for or work with. You know, one of the things that is unique to what I do in the Rising Leader program and, and what I'm writing in my book is I look at the perspective of everybody who's in the boardroom, everybody that you work for, everybody that you work with, are all basically working out their childhoods in their adult life. Like most of us are in the boardroom bringing our five-year-old selves with our triggers and our ambitions and our fears and, and all that stuff that's going on. And you know, he, he or she who can get conscious of that, who can get grounded and centered, usually is the person with the power in the room. With what you're saying, you know, again, you experienced it when, when people were gunning for you in your organization. If you're trying to elevate yourself uh, and you're trying to lead in a different manner, uh, and you're dealing with the egos and all the stuff that goes on in, when you deal with other people who are also messy. How do you find that grounding and centering in order to stay on your path? Um, well, first of all, I've actually written about what you just said. So I, I'm, I'm completely, we are all operating out of our childhood selves. And so, and the people who are unconscious of it are, are the ones that are in the ditch all the time because they keep getting the same things, these same triggers. So I'm completely on board with you. Um, and I, I don't necessarily, I, I think part for what happened with me was that I was successful from the get go. So despite the fact that I'm being told I'm a worthless piece of, you know what, from my father, when I started managing people and just instinctively giving them what I didn't get, I wasn't really conscious of that, but what I was conscious of was that I'm getting great results from people. So when I started managing people professionally, I did it in college, but when I started doing it professionally, like the company just kept coming to me. We're going to give you this and we're going to give you this. And I'm like, are you, what are you crazy? Like, why are we just, you know, I'm just got here and you're doing all this. But I started to realize like, I'm actually pretty good at this. I'm actually capable of this. I didn't look over my shoulder to see what other people were doing. I guess I just assumed everybody was doing what I was doing. And it wasn't until I was in my 40s that somebody had worked for me for 20 years, pointed it out. She said, you know, you manage people very differently, don't you, compared to everyone around you? And I just took the blinders off and said, well, what do you mean? And she started giving me examples of things that I did compared to what everybody else was doing. And it was only then that I realized, oh, my God, like I've been influenced to your point, and the good thing is, is that this was a positive influence, right? It could have been a very negative influence. I could have been horrible to people. I could have passed on what I got. Which most of us do, right? Right. I, I love the fact that she called you a dolphin in a sea of sharks. And I love that. That's exactly right. 
And so I think I, you know, it wasn't until later on that I started to compare myself, but to drill down into your really, the question you're asking me, manage your team the way you want to manage your team and don't get caught up in what other people are doing and don't, you know, wobble. Like if you feel this is the best way to go, even if you're not getting the best results that you want to stay true to yourself and do it this way, inevitably it's going to pay off. And I think that's pick, pick your lane, ideally pick the lane that we're talking about right now and don't get caught up in other people and how they're doing it. It was interesting when my book came out. So I left my company where I had just been named leader of the year and I was running a big business and everybody knew me. And everybody knew that I was a very effective leader. So there's no question there, right? So I left, took time to research, put the book together, had it published two years. The book comes out and it's called Lead from the Heart. And there were people that I used to work with that never took a minute to go, why is that guy so successful? Like, what's he doing that nobody else is doing? No one ever looked under the hood. So when they heard Lead from the Heart, they were like, oh man, what happened to him? Like, you know, like, did he have like a religious breakdown or a spiritual transformation or, you know, whatever, whatever. I'm not kidding. There were a lot of people that were like, oh, man, like, that's too bad. We never thought he It just blew my mind that people aren't really paying attention to what you're doing anyway. Nice. I love that. I kind of did when I when I transitioned, I kind of did have a breakdown but turned me into a coach was having my own midlife crisis, right? And ha- and destroying everything in my life and my health and my mental health and all that stuff and how I built myself back. And I decided to dedicate myself to helping other people succeed differently, right? I was tired of people destroying their marriages, destroying their health and all that stuff just to be successful. Uh, so I dedicated myself to that. But uh, it was interesting because People saw me as this kumbaya guy, this heart guy, and I I was doing okay as a coach, but my business didn't take off until I started to bring back some of the stuff I knew in business, bring back some of the harder skills, like we talked about, some of the competitive, some of the some of the audaciousness, the, the being willing to have pointed and and uh, important conversations, right, and and starting to lead again and marrying the two that you're you know the thing that you're talking about with the real world. And that's when my business, like I have a waiting list and it's in, it's doing great. Right. But it took me a while to find my footing. Cause I came from, I rejected it all and then brought it all back. And now, and now I alchemized it into something completely different. You're setting me up to make an assertion here, which is when I call the book lead from the heart, I called it that because in our world, there's no heart. There's simply no heart in business. It's all about the mind. It's all about rational thinking. It's all about analytics. And we're not thinking about the human, right? So I'm saying, hey, we have to come back and bring the heart and the mind into balance. But I'm not saying take the mind out of this. I'm not saying don't do the data. I'm not saying don't be competitive. I'm not saying don't hold people accountable for their performance and and you know um, and weed them out if they're not performing. I'm just saying you don't have to be ruthless about it. And so when we say use your language, you know, have to be real world. It's like just question what the real world is. That's what I did. In other words, what I found out is that in the real world, people really want a boss that they can trust, that they can care, knows that cares about them, wants to invest for them, and you know is an ambassador for them, is a coach for them. They, they want that. 
they may not express it to you and you may not see that around you, but if you can bring those aspects in, people are going to flock to you because the heart speaks quietly, but it speaks and it's telling you something's really good here. And I've never had that before. And that's what I hear from people just over and over. It's like, I've never worked for anybody like you. And I, sometimes they can't put the words to it, but I can tell just in how they're expressing it to me, how grateful they are. So it's both, just as you described. As you're you know, finding your balance in all this, and as you continue to evolve as a coach, don't necessarily feel like you have to um, pander to the, well, of course, we're going to do the 360s and then we're going to, you know, I mean, you know what I mean? It's like, that's part of the process, but it's certainly not the entire process. 100%. If you look at the people who have been on my podcast since I've changed it over to the rising leader, the leaders, Kevin Haverty, Tom Mendoza, Gary Ridge, John Sapone, these people who have been leaders, they all uh, embody what you're talking about. So I'm so happy that you're you're bringing it all together, you know, from from a place of expertise. Let's just codify what you do and what you talk about in the book with the four practices of leading from the heart. If you can go through those, so we can really give some some structure to what you're saying. You know, I mean, it starts with the foundational idea that that feelings and emotions drive human behavior. We think Descartes said 300 years ago, "I think, therefore, I am," and we've always believed that. So we've always hired the brainiest people for management roles. You need to develop and cultivate an ability to manage other human beings, which is generally not a very rational thing. If you're going to go at people rationally, you're going to miss the insight that you had earlier about people operating from you know, their childhoods and things that they haven't reconciled or healed or even aware that my my dad was so demanding that I'm highly demanding and people don't like that about me. It's like, well, how did I even learn that? So there's a process of, you know, coming to understand who you are. But then there's the practices of starting with hiring people for heart, which really boils down to the understanding that, you know, like, you're driving in a summer day in the city and you see these guys on the tractors putting down asphalt and you're like, who in the world would want to do that job? Like, why would you want to do that job? And you think, well, it has to be because they're probably paying 10 bucks an hour more for that than they would if they were driving, you know, a truck for the city or something like that. And then you go up to them and they're like, no, man, like I'm paving this city. Right. And like you find out that there are people that actually love doing that kind of work. And so I think too often we go, well, you know, Mark is a good, we'll call you just a podcast guest, and he's got a good personality. So we should put him in customer service. So we move you over to customer service and you're like, yep, I I can do that, but I don't like doing that. That's not who I am. But we, we go, no, 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 we're moving you over here. We just, we don't even consider you as a person and what you might want to do or what your talents are more suited for or what you're passionate about. So hiring for heart basically means that for every job you have, you want to be so disciplined that you're basically making sure that people understand what the job is, have the talent to do it, have the interest and motivation to do it. And they're also told what the downsides of the job are. You know, if you don't hit your goals, you don't get a bonus or you're going to have to work Saturdays because the branches are open Saturdays or you're going to have to clean the bathrooms, whatever it is. You're going to have to wear a uniform. So what happens is there's this massive movement in business right now where people are quitting within their first 90 days 
And so you, I'm like, I already know the answer. You know, I saw this, I saw the problem. And I'm like, I know what the answer is. Managers are too afraid to tell people what the real expectations are and what the culture is and how we operate. And so when people come in, they go, nobody told me it was going to be like this. And so their first thing they're doing is like, hey, help me find a job. I got to get the hell out of here. And so it doesn't work for anyone. And so managers need to say, here's the job, good, bad, and the ugly. And if you want it, we're hiring you because we think you have the talent, interest, and passion for it. But you have to tell us whether you think you have that as opposed to just taking somebody off the street who's like, yeah, I would love to do that job. And it's because they need a job. But when they get into it, it's like you fill the position, but you haven't filled it with the very best possible person. The next one is getting to know people personally, which is interesting, Mark, because when I was writing it 11, you know, 12 years ago, 13 years ago, I, I, I had like a really shaky pen, like, because it's, it's so contrary to what we've always believed in business that, you know, I thought this is probably going to push people in the wrong direction. Like some people reading this are going to go, you don't get personal with people. And the assumption they make is, you know, oh, he's saying we need to have them over for Sunday dinner or take them out for drinks. And I'm like, none of that. What I'm saying is, is that you dedicate time to just say, Mark, you and I are going to have an hour together and all I want to do is hear about you. Whatever you're comfortable sharing. Tell me your background. Tell me your upbringing. Tell me what, what you're hoping to accomplish here. Tell me how I can help you. What challenges do you have? Do you have an elderly parent you're taking care of or a new baby at home or going through a divorce, whatever, you know, all these kinds of things. If I can help you in any way, shape or form, but I will manage you differently, Mark, than I will somebody else knowing who you are and what you need. Uh, my assistant, Susan, for had we worked together for almost 20 years. She edited my book. So we're tight as thieves, but like surprisingly late in my career, maybe after we'd been working together for about 15 years, she just did something that was so spectacular. And so I was in a meeting with my entire team and I said, I just like emoted. And I just said, hey, can I? Can we just give Susan a round of applause because the work she's doing? So she's my assistant, but she's helping them in their whole region, and they knew that. And so I told them what I was observing, and they gave her this massive applause. And the meeting was over about five minutes after everybody had left the building to go go home. She comes in my office and she says, "Don't you ever do that again?" And I was like, "What?" And she's like, you know, I don't like that kind of public recognition. And it was just coming from, you know, like sincere gratitude, right? But what I was forgetting was that she's an introvert and she doesn't, all she needed was for me to tell her that I'm thrilled. That was enough for her. She didn't want to be embarrassed in the meeting. And so it's a reminder that what you might need is what somebody else might need. Somebody else, high performers need tons of appreciation. So the third one is, is, is really tied to growth and development. We know that the, one of the greatest motivators of engagement is whether people feel they're growing. So when I was in corporate world, I was identified as high talent. So what that meant was their company is making a big investment in me because they see a potential in me. And I was the beneficiary of huge investments and all sorts of growth opportunities, which ultimately helped me. But if I were to advise a company, I would say, don't ever do that again. You can have a high talent program, 
But you have to make the same investment in everyone, everyone, literally everyone. When anyone feels like if I'm cleaning rooms all day long in a hotel and that's all I'm doing and there's no more potential for me and I stop growing, I'm going to just like, I mean, there are very few people that can do that job for 10 years in a row. What do you, what would you like to do next? How, what other, would you like to manage people, group of people, whatever. So it's really figuring out what that is and then coaching people, teaching people, investing in people. And one final point that I'll make about this is don't just teach them the job, teach them life skills, teach them like identify yourself and your upbringing. And there's all sorts of things that you can do to broaden people, teach them how to save for retirement or get a mortgage loan, bring people in, and just devote some of the meaning to it. Very un, unre, you know, unreasonable to some people. It's like, no, you have to keep focused on production. You have to keep people. And I'm like, the amount of time we're talking about in the scheme of things is so nominal, but from the impact and the gratitude that people feel, that translates into engagement. And then finally, the one that everybody thinks they've got mastered is this massive gap between appreciating people and making sure that people know that the work that they're doing is completely, completely, consistently appreciated openly so all can see Mark is doing a fantastic job. Let's make sure Mark knows he's doing a fantastic job. And also understanding that if there's a team of 30, and 27 of them are performing well, you have to thank and acknowledge all 27. You don't go, well, it's too many to thank, so let's just thank the top three. Hey, great job, top three. And then you got 24 people that are like, well, I got nothing for that, but I did everything you asked me to do. And then you have three people who are like, well, I'm number 29 here. I'm not going to get to number three. So you shut them down. I'm saying make sure that your appreciation, I call it institutionalizing recognition, where you're basically acknowledging people in a monthly meeting and you're going over performance and you're thanking people personally for the results that they've achieved and making sure everybody's inclusive. Takes more time, but and people think, oh, that's a waste of time. And I'm here to tell you it's one of the greatest, most powerful things that you can do. But Finally, Mark, is managers think I'm already doing that. And I'd say, well, if you think you are, go ask your people how often they think you appreciate them. And there's going to be this massive gap between what you think you do and what people actually need. Yeah, go ask your people and your guests, your spouse, your significant other, the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so there's two quotes. One I'm not sure was from you. I just, I wrote it down and I can't remember if I got it from your book or you, but the first one was high employee engagement is a wonder drug. I love that, right? It, it's it's so good for morale, culture, but it's good for the bottom line. It's good for performance. It's good for everything. So I thought that was, it was just a great quote. And the last one we'll leave with is, uh, named cows produce 6% more milk. Was that you? <laughs> right. I, I, th- I thought so. I thought so too. It works. It just works so well. Mark, I love your work. Thank you for bringing it into the world. Thank you for sticking to your guns and not becoming the uh, killer engagement guy. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for that. I need, I need that encouragement today, Mark. So thank you very much. If uh, people want more of you, where can they find you? MarkCCrowley.com. There was another Mark Crowley out there when I created my website, so I had to add the C in there. So it's MarkCCrowley.com. 
everything's there. The book is Lead from the Heart. It's on Amazon. But everything, if you want to just go to my website, you'll find everything, Twitter, LinkedIn, et cetera. Great. And that all of that will be in the show notes. And also, if you like this conversation, go to our mutual friend, Meredith Bell's Grow Strong Leader podcast, where you'll get way more in-depth background on Mark. And, uh, and you know, we know that Meredith asks way more intelligent questions than I do. I support her 100%. Mark, thank you for being here. All right. Thank you so very much, Mark. You're great. To everybody else, I really, really appreciate your time and attention. You did great today. I love you. Have a great rest of the day. Thank you for joining today's conversation. If you got value, please share the episode, give us a thumbs up, write us a review. And if there's a topic you'd like us to cover or a question that you have, send them my way. Look forward to connecting on the next episode of the Rising Leader Podcast.